Greetings and welcome to Broken Boxes. This episode presents a conversation with Chip Thomas, hosted by Chinupa Hanska Luker. In all transparency, having a chat with Chip has been on the books since this project began years ago. After reaching out to Chip, he has become a great friend to Chinupa and I and a collaborator of Chinupa's on various projects, with more to come, I'm sure. One of the reasons it took so long to get this interview is that Chip lives rurally, and so do we. And with that comes poor internet, which is not the best for recording an online call. Now that rural connection is secured for both Chip and our studio, we were able to make the call happen and the stars or satellites aligned, so to speak. Granted, you will notice a bit of connection glitch on this episode. I am so thrilled we were able to finally make this recording possible and share with you all. I invite you to take some time to learn about Chip and the work he is doing. As Chinupa states on the call, this conversation really only scratches the surface of the life and practice of such a passionate photographer of our time. And I have a feeling Chip is just getting started. I'll read an excerpt from Chip's bio to introduce the chat. Chip Thomas, AKA Jet Sonorama, is a photographer, public artist, and physician who has been working in a small clinic on the Navajo Nation since 1987. There, he coordinates the Painted Desert Project, which he describes as a community building dialogue, which manifests as a constellation of murals painted by artists from the Navajo Nation, as well as from around the world. Thomas's own public artwork consists of enlarged black and white photographs pasted onto structures along the roadside, primarily on the Navajo Nation. His motivation is to reflect back to the community and the love they've shared with him over the years. Find out more about Painted Desert Project and check out Chip's work on social at Jetsonorama. Thanks so much for being part of the project, Chip, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Hola. <laughs> Where are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I am presently in my house out on the Navajo Nation to Nebuchadnezzar, but in my mind, <laughs> um, I am frequently in the nation state of Brazil. I have a friend who is an artist. In fact, he does uh, pay steps as well. Um, he lives in San San Paulo, and he gets uh -huh. some big, beautiful pieces up. But um, he is also a musician, and he and his friends will um, have a little pagoji group where they play with acoustic instruments and a bandero, so it's very rhythmic and percussive because it's Brazilian. We'll go to this place, and this place is called Cracolandia, and it's the largest open-air crack market in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so they will go once a week into the space and um, sit in a circle and just start playing music. And it's a fascinating, beautiful thing to see. Um, and in this particular image, we were being, the police came and asked us to move from one part of the encampment to another part of the city. And yeah. So first, let me say, Chip, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you um, for your flexibility. Yeah, no worries. But just as a as an overview, I kind of want to get just like a brief Chip Thomas story um, as far as like 
how you got to where you're at and this sort of stuff. But I'm going to start it by just having you introduce yourself. And then, I don't know, I like having a conversation with the person. And I feel like a lot of our stories kind of unfold, <laughs> unfold through, you know, just chopping it up. This is my my podcasting style, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, so, no, that sounds great. Well, to begin with then, Chip Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today on Broken Boxes. And I would love for you to introduce yourself in the in the way that you'd like to introduce yourself. And then let's open up a conversation around your life and experience. Cool. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chalupa. Thank you, Gender. Thank you to Broken Boxes for the opportunity to sit here and have this conversation. Um, I'm coming to you from uh, Northern Arizona, on Dene Bikeya, um, near Shanto, just south of Navajo Mountain, where I've lived and worked for the past 34 and a half years. Um, and where I started doing a public art practice uh, in 2009. I'm interested in, in the position that you hold um, on now, Dene Akea. Is that how it's pronounced? Dikea. Dene Dikea. 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 Yeah. Okay. I'm um, not the person just... to ask. But... <laughs> 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 but here we are. <laughs> Uh, one one not expert asking another. Um. <laughs> you, you totally set me up. <laughs> uh, how do you well, say that? How do you? Well, no, no. I mean, I know how it's said, but how do you say it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I said it correctly. So let, yeah, <laughs> but I said it with with a good intention. Well, you're in. You're you're living in Napo Nation. You've been there for you said thirty four years now. Thirty four and a half. Yeah, thirty four and a half years. What um, What was the initial kind of uh, thing that brought you to to the land, to the Southwest, to Navajo Nation? What What kind of drove that? Yeah, so I'm from North Carolina originally. I don't think I said that. That's where my my uh, people are from. Yeah, my father's from Wilmington. My mom is from Gastonia. And um, I, gr I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, but um, spent a lot of time in the mountains of North Carolina as well, going to school. So let's see. I, after college, I went to Wake Forest in North Carolina, applied to medical school. And there's a predominantly African-American HBCU historically um, black college and university based in Nashville, Tennessee. It was founded in the late 1800s by a white benefactor. It was founded for free enslaved people. And uh, it was a medical school, dental school and nursing school there. So yeah, I um, went there, but when I went, the government paid for my education for four years, such that when I finished, I knew I had to work in a health shortage area. And a dear, dear friend of mine from med school was working right here at Inscription House with her husband. And she said to her husband, you know, I really think this area would uh, resonate with Chip. And so, I mean, I laugh when I say that because, you know, <laughs> she, she clearly knew me 34 and a half years later. 
<laughs> and I went to college at Wake Forest. We did a field trip across the country. We um, spent a spring semester studying the flora and fauna of the Sonoran Desert. So the spring semester we studied, then we drove across country and we traveled by, we had two vans and we traveled the length of the Baja Peninsula camping um, along the way and just had an amazing time. But when we came back, one of the students needed to be dropped off in Flagstaff. This was 1978. And we dropped him off at the Grand bus station. <laughs> and I just said to myself, oh my God, this is such a beautiful little town. I can see myself living there one day. <laughs> so when I had the opportunity, you know, like what, seven years later to come out here and work. Yeah, it just, you know, it's funny. It has just felt right. And yeah, it's really well, nice. Proof, proof is in in uh, living it. You've been there for 34 years now. So you saw it. You saw it at that time. You, and uh, <laughs> you made it. You made it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, now it's a hard time because, you know, I'm looking at leaving or decreasing my presence here. And it's really all about breaking relationships with people you know i mean i have a relationship with the land but just an intergenerational relationship you know with families yeah it's really a unique position to have been in or to to be in presently you know to be from an outside culture and to grow old with a community yeah yeah well, the you mentioned that you're leaving soon, and just for for clarity, you're looking to retire now from your medical practice, correct? Yeah, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, in truth, you know, I I think of ways I could work here part time, you know, and just essentially move my base of operation from being here maybe into Flagstaff since I can't own property here and really reside here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Flagstaff's not too far away. And Flagstaff was the place that you saw that you're like, I like, I could, yeah. I could see myself. Right. right. It's just weird to think, you know, that this time has come, you know, it's like for so long I've done that drive between inscription house and Flagstaff, you know, and I was just, in flag this weekend and was thinking as I was driving back in the morning how the things I would notice when I first started doing it 34 years ago and just yeah just it, um, there's a lot of memory and emotion <laughs> just from having been out here for as yeah for as long as yeah. I have well and all of that memory and emotion was developed over time right so Time's not over. Even though you're you're uh, retiring, that doesn't mean that the time's over. So the you're going to continue to adapt on to that experience. And I mean, yeah. it, that development of relationship to not just the landscape, but also the community, like you had mentioned, for generation. I was introduced to you through your uh, Painted Desert project that you were doing, that you do continue to do. Um, we'll, we'll see how all of that unfolds. In, um, in Dene Dikea. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. That like was that. right. 
<laughs> on the on the land there, you know. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's you know none of that's the hard work, right? Like to become a part of the community, to engage to engage with community in in that way. That's that's the more difficult part of any sort of dude. Uh, dude, practice. I have to tell you. Yeah, I, I cut you off, but, um, you know, it's funny because I, I had been here for 22 years um, working as a doctor before I started going out into the community putting pictures up. But it's only been since I started putting the pictures up that the conversation has really changed with the community. And they get, you know, that I am out of the clinic. I am in my passion and having conversations with them from that perspective. And it just, it's a lot richer and deeper, especially if they come back into the clinic, you know, with that background. Yeah, the the position of being an indigenous person myself and going to clinics, being born in a clinic through IHS, through these Indian health service programs and stuff like that. Um, I was not interested in the lives of the doctors that didn't seem interested in the lives of me, you know, um, even though they're yeah. like sewing parts back on that I have severed, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I just don't believe you're invested in my life, <laughs> which is a funny position. But I think art has this profound ability to um, one, it shows your vulnerability, you know, and it changes the power dynamic. So getting to know, getting to know community is it's it's better to show them your your kind of like vulnerable space you know here's my belly let me show you my belly and then we'll see if yeah. we can be family <laughs> yeah no well, i do I, so, I, that's what i'm saying i was so frustrated in the context of working in the clinic for 22 years not having deep meaningful relationships i mean i you know i did with a few but um, yeah, you know, and I was telling someone earlier how when I am interacting with people in the clinic, I, the power dynamic, you know, has me on a pedestal, right? I'm the doctor. I'm the person someone is coming to who wants something and they want me to help them in some way. Yet when I'm in the community putting something up, especially a community that doesn't know me, it's, you know, yeah, I feel it's about being vulnerable and just speaking from my heart about my passion, why I'm doing this. And yeah, yeah, but it's nice to, um, it's nice to flip the script. Well, one of the, one of the aspects of the Painted Desert Project that I also found really, I mean, it, it, you know, as far as um, me not being from that community, but recognizing you as somebody who I would like to be a part of my community or be in relationship with, is that you. You, you created a space for people outside of the region to actually give to the community versus uh, play off of, like the, the reciprocation of the, of the projects that you develop and the invitation for people outside to come, not as tourists, but as member, you know? I, uh, there, yeah. There's something really profound in that model. And I was wondering yeah. if you could describe some of that to to our listeners or you know just to better better let me understand the process that got you to that point yeah well okay so let me let me di digress a moment and say that um let's see 1968 i'm gonna date myself let's see 1968 in the south in raleigh the public school system was de desegregated right so 1969, I would I would have started middle school and I would have been bused across town to a white school. But there was also some violence happening in the schools that my parents didn't want me to go there. 
<laughs> they actually wanted me to go to a military institute, which is ironic. But um, I ended up going to an alternative Quaker school in the mountains of North Carolina. And there were so many lessons that I learned there, but the most essential was on what it takes to uh, build community. So it's, and it's a lesson. I, I was in that environment for three years. We would do everything by consensus. You know, we would sit and just process and process. And, <laughs> um, but, you know, do it in a respectful way. And um, whenever we would take field trips in the spring, I mean, this was a very small school. There were just 25 students in the entire school. But we would always do some background research on where we were going and just, you know, have a sense of what it was about. Um, and then it would help if we had a connection in that spot, right? So that's really what I tried to do with the Painted Desert Project is um, kind of be the intermediary between artists whose style had a tendency towards social practice and the community. And, you know, giving people reading material, telling them videos on YouTube to watch for free, like Broken Rainbow, <laughs> filmed in 1985, won a documentary award <laughs> for best document, um, won an award, uh, an Academy Award for best documentary, but it tells the story of the land dispute between the Navajo and the Hopi and how those politics impact everything happening now, you know? <laughs> So yeah, I, um, I try to get people to do their research and then I connect artists with people on the res and try to get a dialogue started. So the artist isn't coming in culturally insensitive. I have made errors, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we put so much emphasis on trying to do everything perfectly that we don't do anything at all. So I think that there is value in making a mistake and learning from it. Um, yeah. And because, uh, Painted Desert had been going on so long, you had the uh, the capacity to take a mistake from a previous iteration and learn from that and, you know, put it in, right. screw up again in a different way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is yeah. fine. I mean, Indian country has experienced that over and over and over again. But I think that the, the positionality of bringing artists in and it being really kind of grassroots level versus institutionally yeah, based. Totally. There's a lot more leniency in that, you know, yeah, as far yeah. as uh, I'm, I'm ignorant, make me experienced, give me, tell me, tell me where I made a mistake, you know, and uh, that's easier to do on a, on a person to person level. Yeah, right. And it's a, it's a big piece of property, you know, um, the, the landscape in the four corners there. And there's a lot of land in between habited spaces. So, you know, oftentimes we think about Native people, especially through like the Western lens or the American gaze or white gaze or anything along those lines. And Native people are all underneath this one big umbrella. But the closer you are to a community, you realize that, oh, even this like, one nation is uh, also compartmentalized. You know, there are different things that different people do in different regions, yeah. you know, different protocols. Yeah. The Navajo Nation is large. Um, and as you're saying, it isn't monolithic in any way. Right. And, but nobody would understand that unless they're there, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, me, I, I'm also a native person. I didn't understand the complexity of, of the Navajo Nation until I lived here in the Southwest and actually began to like 
meet folks who were Diné and and they're telling me about stuff. And then you realize like, oh, these Diné aren't, aren't down with those Diné over there, you know? Um, <laughs> they do things differently. And, and I respect that, you know? I respect yeah. that there is complexity embedded in that because for the most part, um, everybody's experience is often reduced to dimensional entities. And it definitely takes that complexity to really develop what it means to relate. Um, I'm kind of also kind of drawing back. You had mentioned um, going to school at this at this uh, Quaker school and some of the protocols that they have embedded in their communities are uh, felt, they feel really similar to a lot of like smaller indigenous communities. Like this idea of consensus is, um, <laughs> I mean, you're like the school was, the classroom was small. There was 25 people. And I'm like, yeah, try to get 25 people to agree on something. That's a, uh, you start to see the scale of consensus, you know, <laughs> there, there are, that was our uh, back home where I'm from in North Dakota prior to contact when our communities were, were, you know, untouched and, and how we sustained ourselves and how we governed ourselves was through consensus. You know, it took a long time, but you had, right. a, you had a generation of people to talk about it, you know, and I hear you, man. I'm intrigued with how that learning then became as you had mentioned, kind of like uh, left an indelible mark on you. Um, yeah. And in what other ways? I mean, your your work doesn't stay just in uh, Arizona, Four Corners region. You work all over the place. Do you apply those same kind of models in other communities that you engage with? That's a good question, man. I think the best projects that I do in other places away from my home um, are those where I've had an opportunity to invest time um, either in families and individuals, you know, in meetings and hanging out uh, and or taking the time to read the, the, the history of the place and then having those connections. So it's hard to do because I'm working full time, which is why I don't do, I don't know, as many projects as I would like to, uh, but I also want to invest the time in building that knowledge of the place and building those relationships with people in that place. So yeah, I, I try to do that. When I first started in 2009, the big thing then, in fact, the thing that influenced the Painted Desert Project um, were all these street art festivals that were happening in cities around the world. Like in New York City, there was the Underbelly Project uh, for Justin Sealer and one other curated broad artists from around the world over the course of a year and stuck them down to an, an abandoned subway station. And, you know, people made amazing work. And it, then it was only open to a few people. But then there was also the Boneyard Project in Tucson at the, um, at the Air Museum. Yeah, so those festivals aren't as prevalent as they used to be. And those, one of the criticisms of them was they were having artists come in from outside a community, basically parachute and create work that in no way reson resonated with the community. And then after the festival, some of the work would have to get buffed, you know? So I really, I, I was cognizant of that as I was going about how to create a model for the Painted Desert Project. And yeah, I wanted to avoid that. 
Well, that's bringing, that's bringing up a whole nother kind of uh, conversation that I think could unfold. Your practice um, exists in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from looking and photographing people and community. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, I'm, I'm wondering about what your relationship to photography is as far as telling a story of a community of people and how you kind of navigate that space. Because once again, you live in, you know, Navajo nation that, that we have like a a strange relationship with even photography, you know, Um, you know, (laughs) that's history of an outsider, especially with a camera. Yeah. (laughs) Using an anthropological approach to, to document, to witness, you know, it's like, that's, so it's like, how do you do that? My, the question for me is like, how, how can you do that in a way that's respectful and is honest? And for 22 years before I started doing the dark room, in fact, the dark room is still here in my house. But for 22 years, man, I was hitting it on a regular basis. And I would have shows, you know, of the work in galleries around the country. But, you know, it's not the same as now where I... The work that I put up, I have to be responsible for and accountable for. Yeah, because people know I'm doing it. So uh, I really try not to do it in an anthropological way. I mean, and I say that in that I, uh, my experience is a lived experience. You know, it isn't, it isn't um, something <laughs> that I like so much that I travel every summer to this place to pursue it. And I've been doing that for the past 30 years. Um, This is, you know, my day to day. And, you know, there's an, even though the people who I am photographing, I consider associates or friends and it's their story they are sharing with me is still my life experience spending this time with them, having an opportunity to be in that moment and maybe even capture the moment and then use them in a way that they feel good about, you know? Um, So it's cool because it really is about having conversations with people and collaborating with them from the beginning. I'm taking this photograph of you. I'm thinking about using it in this way. And I I reimburse people, you know, for their, for their time, for their, for their energy. I'm always thinking about the inherent violence that's in the language of photography. It's shooting, it's capturing. There's all of these kind of things. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And as somebody who's working with like video and stuff like that, I really try to make like conscious effort to like omit that language from it, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I was just thinking about it today. The, you know, I come from a culture that had an oral tradition, you know, so it's telling a story. It's telling a story to, to an audience. Even if you speak it verbatim, this, this narrative, this legend, this story, whatever it is, um, even if you speak it verbatim, because of who you are, you change it. Subtle little things, the the way you say things, the context of what you're wearing at the time, you know, like all of those things shift it. And, and, I, I kept struggling with photography and video in that 
it exists as a record. So it is almost like a, um, like a text, you know, of, of an experience. Yeah. There's something in photography um, and video, you know, uh, image, image uh, uh, rendering and whatnot, that because it takes a three-dimensional space and transforms it into a two-dimensional image, especially in photography, I feel like the frame of the photographer's gaze omits like the time before it omits the time after it omits everything outside of the frame that I think is a little bit closer to the oral kind of kind of storytelling where it's like look uh, I've, uh, I've gathered this one moment but it you know automatically by the limitations of the frame that it's not the yeah. whole story you know right so, Right. Yeah. I, you have you ever thought about anything like that, or do you? I, I imagine you do, but I would love to hear your your well, insight. I, I mean, I don't. I, I think about it in a different way. So one of the people who really influenced the way I approach storytelling is a photographer by the name of Eugene Richards, who shot for Life magazine in the eighties and nineties, and he um, would shoot black and white, and he would break every rule for composition um and Henri Cartier-Bresson was all about the precise moment I think he called it or I forget what it was but you know that one moment where you get just this amazing image Eugene Richards uh, was just the opposite where he was about the long storm the, the long format uh storytelling and doing photo essays, spending, you know, months with people and, you know, putting us. So, I, yeah, the image you you see <laughs> is very true um, of someone else's work is edited down usually to one or two images. But I get to see basically a still of, of the movie of everything that's around. So it's like the photographer, you know, chooses what the viewer sees. But the photographer still sees everything. And yeah, he or she translates it from 3D to 2D. But yeah, we're sharing with you what moves us. Yeah, there's a, there's definitely a narrative component to it, right? Uh, you know, like Edward Curtis, you know, which might be yeah, like right. maybe the trauma that Native people have in relationship to photo documentation. Yeah. You know, yeah. is there is there's an incentive there's a there's a behind behind curtis behind the photographer is a mission you know um yeah. and, and from that anthropological lens you have to embed the the you have to embed academia you know into that yeah. into that whole narrative as well so you you photographed primarily or you learned primarily through film do you still shoot film or do you do you use digital photography these days? <laughs> Thank you for asking that question because uh, film is not dead. Um, however, <laughs> um, it's been, I haven't developed film since, since 2012. My darkroom is still set up. Um, I still have all of the equipment. I need to do chemistry. But um, I mean, you know, dude, I tell you, I spent so many nights agitating trees, you know, knowing that I was going to have to get up in a few hours and go to work that um, I thought I would never stop processing film. But just working full time and wanting to get 
imagery up and literally out into the community. Working digitally is, yeah, it's a nice workflow. Well, and something that you had mentioned too by the by the photographer who who influenced you. What was it? What was his name again? Eugene Richards. Eugene Richards. That model seems a lot easier to equate using digital than it does film. You know, as far as uh, gathering all all of the surroundings, everything that came up. You know, to use a digital camera and to render that immediately seems like a, a much easier way to navigate that space. And potentially, I imagine that this cat was shooting film, um, but right. they have adapted digital instantly because of the, the ease of developing that. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing because like the guys who, I, who really influenced me, Sebastio Salgado, the Brazilian, um, James Noctway, uh, Eugene Richards, a lot of them have, you know, are like in their 70s now and have stopped shooting. So I, even though I think it would be easier for them to tell those stories in a digital format, I don't know that they're, they aren't telling stories in the same way. Um, hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say yeah. that the digital lens definitely transforms the... Um, the return on uh, a photograph, right? Like you take a photograph with film, you have no idea how it turned out, but then using a digital camera, you're like, I'm gonna take 100 shots of it uh, on accident. You know? <laughs> um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bring a, a stack of SD cards and be able to like look and see if it is what, I'm, what I you know, wanted to engage with yeah. instantaneously. Yeah. I, 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 I feel everything that, that you just said. I, I'm so thankful, though, for the time that I was shooting analog. And, um, you know, because I really think it helped me train my eye, you know, knowing that I just had 36, 35 exposures per roll of film and I only had maybe three rolls of film on me, you know, being really so selective in those moments. And, yeah, just not burning through film or digital imagery at this point, loading up my hard drives and having to get more because the files are so big and yeah. Well, I think that there's something also in the development of a skill set, right? The, the, the craft, yeah. of being able to see and develop a composition in your mind, you know, and before you, before you click, being able to see it through that framework develops like uh, training, you know, of like, okay. It does, this, it does, yeah. There, there's a lot to be said for what, for always having a camera with you around your neck, you know, and it's very different, I think, from uh, using a phone, maybe not, but um, it, it really is about constant use. I guess the instrument doesn't matter. So it could be, you know, a camera, a film camera, digital camera, or, or your phone, but yeah, just using it and composing and yeah, practicing. Well, and at this point, like everybody all the time has a camera on them. And there is like an assumption that <laughs> we can all do it. Um, but I'm the worst photographer. Like I have yeah. no, I have no eye for it, you know, um, composition, nothing. I'm like, I'm like, I, 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 that's, that's, that, that's fascinating. You know, that your art is so visual and uh, tactile that you <laughs> don't have more of a spatial. I mean, you do have a spatial sense and that you do, sculpture and ceramics yeah. yeah you know what i'm trying to say 
all all of it. I do all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would think that your 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 compositional skills would be exemplary. <laughs> anyway, well, but I think my limitation is the ease at which I I had to have no training. You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. there, right. No, that's the cool thing about what I'm doing now. I mean, I think of it as being punk. I think of it as being hip hop because, you know, I, I taught myself the work that I do and or did in my dark room. And, you know, I was curious about getting imagery up outside and just started experimenting with that, you know, buying huge sacks of flour, making wheat paste. And yeah, but it's all self-taught. It's all D DIY. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how you uh, compose, because you do really interesting things with your photographs as far as manipulation of the image. And then also once it goes from image manipulation to actually installing it as a, a paste up or a, a, a mural of some sort, could yeah. you describe a little bit of that practice and what you think about well, in, in framing that? Yeah, I want to ask though, you said that I... Ma manipulate the uh, picture and and what way do you see that happening um well i never see your work as single photographs i've only seen them like on the land as installations or something along those lines and there yeah. is from my from where i've seen it i feel like you've taken great effort to transform the 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 photographic image that you're working from but incorporate the landscape the architecture the environment and you will yeah. like really cut out pieces yeah. to paste it on so you're recomposing the work in physical space and i'm really interested in I, you know so again i did photography for 22 years and it wasn't until i started <laughs> a very tactile practice uh, putting my hands into hot or warm homemade wheat paste, rubbing it onto the you know side of a building, filling every bit of that wall that I'm you know putting the paste on, putting the paper on it, pushing it into the wall. It's I mean it's such a sensual, sensuous, tactile experience that I didn't think of myself as an artist until I started interacting with architecture, playing with buildings, and you know keeping the frame, keeping the image uniform, but you know, having it go over door jams or into window recesses, but keep the alignment, you know, right on. So it's a trick of the eye. I mean, there's, there's so much I love about interacting with uh, physical space. Yeah. And do you re recollect that transition, you know, like that period at which you were photographing and then we're like, all right, let's what was the what was the first place that you were like I want to I want to wheat paste this up? What what was the what drove oh. that transition? Yeah yeah yeah. So right. So when I first started again, I was sneaking out at night. You know, no one knew who was putting the pictures up or why. Um, but in route from Inscription House to Flagstaff, you go through Tuba City, then you turn left onto 89 and travel south to Flag. Just after you turn onto 89, there was a roadside stand that had um, like, you know, plywood, you know, like quarter inch, pretty thin plywood walls, but they were painted this beautiful color maroon. <clears throat> and it was on the north side of the building. So it wasn't getting a lot of weather and this, this really nice deep maroon was holding its color, but the building itself was falling down. 
<laughs> so I pasted um, images of code talkers. And then a week later, when I was passing by, there were people out building that roadside stand back up. And I asked them why. And they, they said so many people had stopped to take pictures of the code talkers that they decided to use that stand again, right? But it was, you know, so it was noticing as I was driving, as I drive around the rest, I noticed color, you know, texture, how imagery will interact with different structures, but especially certain colors, you know, and yeah, I just, yeah. Like you had mentioned, your first cruising out doing this gorilla style, like straight graffiti, yeah. you know, no. Right. <laughs> No, um, no consensus at all, Chip. No consensus. Right. <laughs> no, no communication with the community. Right. I thought that was what street artists did, even though I was on the res. It was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, there is there is a lot of that. Right. You know, maybe, maybe the the you had mentioned this kind of like growth and in interest in some of these um, street art like festivals that are happening. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but right. A lot of those cats are, you know, a lot of them are graffiti writers. They are they are doing this work illegally. But then, a lot of them are also like uh, have master's degrees in in um, whatever de design, you know, and and right. paint, and now and now get like sanctioned walls to do these sorts of right. things. Right, right. That's the uh, mural festival scene that was really prominent, say, 10, 10 years ago. Right. And then on the back end of that is like corporate entities that are sponsoring all of this sort of stuff, right. like profiting off of artists who are willing to have an opportunity to go at that scale. Right. Right. But then right. Uh, but in actual communities where like the birth of street art existed, and I'm doing this with like heavy quotation, yeah. is that it was the, the form was designed out of like developing um, uh, ownership of people's communities and environments. And it's, it's definitely like community based, you know, which is so, yeah. so different than the, <laughs> than the festivals. But one thing that you had just mentioned with your non-consensus guerrilla efforts was that there was an exchange that happened in the process of putting up the code talkers on this stand. Yeah. I think that there's a, there's a um, there's an economic system that maybe most people don't know about on the res, which is yeah. these these roadside stands, right. four corners area, beautiful landscapes. So much of that those highways were built to bring people west and travel this like romantic idea of of hollywood's version of the west and in doing so a whole economic system developed for indigenous communities in the region for selling wares and foods and stuff like that to people touring yeah i was the history of the harvey car you know stopping at La Pisada in Winslow, the, the, the train pulls up right in back and, you know, wealthy people from the East in the late 1800s. Well, I, when, when was the Model Ford developed? In the 1904? Anyway, the yeah. early 1900s, the cars actually started coming from Winslow, going to Navajo Mountain, um, bringing tourists out to see the land and the people. But yeah, there's a history 
of these roads having been built for that and people now making a small percentage of people making some income from selling uh, pottery, earrings, beadwork, silversmithing, occasionally rugs and these roadside stands. So you're absolutely right. I realized with the code talkers that this could be a win-win situation where, because when I told them, the guys that I put the uh, code talker piece up, they said, thank you. Will you put a piece on the other side to stop traffic coming from uh, Flagstaff? So I realized, cool, there's an opportunity for me to get art up where it can be seen and for these vendors to get more tourist traffic. And then I heard stories about vendors stopping and, you know, making friends and getting invited to people's homes to eat. And <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there were some cool incidental things that have come out of the project. Yeah. And it feels like that model is kind of what perpetuated the painted desert from 2009 and forward that there was a reciprocal there was a there was a a giving back to community that that was um beneficial you know and that change that changes it yeah it's the antithesis of the parachute model but i really want to hear what you had to say (laughs) (laughs) well no that that's it i mean i honestly as an artist um and as somebody who's collaborated with you that that model just seemed so um, right on, you know, for the for the time in response to even the like uh, where where, you know, these big street art festivals were developing this as an antithesis to that seemed a lot more in line with the art and the purpose of art. Uh, it seemed more honest to yeah. that and less like corporatized and also less like uh, uh, extractive to both the community and the artist. It's, it's one thing to be able to pay somebody and, and pay them when you can, but the capital that's most beneficial from my experience is this social capital of actually yeah. getting to know and being a part of a community, you know? Um, yeah. Or e- even if it's temporary, you know, even if it's for a short time, the way that you change somebody's life is a way to also understand your own life better being invited in allows a a much more intricate illustration of your border you know like the edge of uh with that being said i'm i'm interested in um you being the kind of like hub of these intersectional spaces have you heard heard more about like how artists have uh changed or developed since working on those things we talked a little bit about the community but did it go in the other direction as well yeah you know i um i am in touch with a few artists who have okay let me just say this in fact i was thinking about this as i was as you were talking because one of the criticisms that I was getting early on was I wasn't involving enough native artists in the lineup of people I was bringing out to the to the reservation. So that changed. And in fact, one of the questions that you asked earlier was if anyone has benefited from the system. And yeah, there's a local artist by the name of Daniel Jossley. Yeah, you never met him, but you know of his work at the Anayazian um, and his mural work. But yeah, he's been working with a lot of artists I have brought out, which is what I wanted to do with the program was to use it as a mentoring platform for a local artist. But so there have been more artists involved in the programming over the years. But I mean, even when I started the first year, there were, I think, maybe a total of seven artists and three of them 
were native folks. So now I was just gonna say that, you know, I, the model for the Painted Desert Project has been different and it's not a corporate model by any means, you know, it's very grassroots and DIY, but um, some of the biggest names in street art from 10 years ago heard about what I was doing and, you know, just wanted to come and volunteer time in exchange for some space. Yeah, some space to stay, and, you know. Yeah, so it's, I mean, which also helped me creatively. So it's been a two-way street, you know, having people here from, who give local artists an opportunity to uh, learn, but I learn from them when they're here in my home, even, or when they're on the, on the spot working. Yeah, but some of the artists who have passed through here, there's another fellow from Pittsburgh named Brian Gonella, who, um, had a really good experience and who references the Painted Desert Project and his time here, yeah. I think that there's there's also a back end of the process of putting up this work. Like it is, uh, the illusion is that it is an individual with a bandana going in at night and putting this thing up in one evening and, and bouncing, right? Like that's the, that's the romantic idea of these sorts of things. But the reality of, of putting together something like this actually involves the community. So not only do you have, you, you develop almost like a mentorship, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so in truth, over the past, well, obviously with COVID-19, I haven't been getting folks out. But the model previously was to identify a wall, <laughs> find the person who owned the wall, talk to them. Um, occasionally people would come and volunteer walls to me, but, you know, making sure the artist who was uh, coming to visit spent time with the family who owned the wall and, um, yeah, not creating work that wasn't culturally sensitive. Right. And a trick all in its, all in its own. Once again, talking about the complexity of a people, a region, a landscape, like, um, <laughs> yeah, that is, that is not my, monolithic you know even families you know there are people who are members of uh, the traditional way the native american church or christianity and you know the beliefs within those families within those systems of thought are can be in conflict yeah <laughs> even within a family <laughs> yeah. yeah totally yeah. well as as a native artist myself like navigating those spaces is complicated always you know yeah. and uh i i give you kudos or <laughs> some sort of honorific uh expression to to dive into that space i mean Renit, you've been there for 33 years so like in any human experience you're like this this is my community you know like i've <laughs> I've devoted my my life to this to this region, um, but yeah, there's a matter uh, <laughs> there's a matter of acceptance in in India. Yeah. you know. Yeah, um, right, right. But and, I mean, you you said it. I mean, I've I've uh, I have made mistakes, and you know, I think one of the most beautiful lessons I've learned here is just the generosity of people and the willingness to forgive. You know. And I have noticed that people really do tend to judge you by your actions, not so much by your words and, you know, your actions over time. Yeah. yeah. So valuable lessons have been, have been learned. <laughs> well, yeah. I would like to also just kind of bring this back into you and I. 
Um, I got to spend my, I just turned 43 like last week <laughs> and I got to spend a birthday and I think it was my 40th birthday with you. And we went out and you photographed some pieces that I was working on and we were, you know, doing a project together. And I don't know, I just kind of wanted to, to bring that back in because that was kind of my, that was the first time that like I had never really met you before, and then I got to sleep in your house, you know, like first <laughs> first meeting, and then yeah. we we got to go on birthday adventures, and um, <laughs> and you tooled me around, and it was honestly in my in my forty three years of birthdays, um, yeah. it's top right, it's in the top ranking, you know. Um, <laughs> There were some marvelous moments on that trip. Um, I'm thinking about you going into the trading post um, dressed as one of, or partially dressed as one of the uh, warrior twins. Um, <laughs> getting more more strange looks than than uh, me. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the regalia pieces that we photographed there are, you know, and this is this is also something that's kind of interesting is. Um, they were modeled after our, um, monster, monster fighting narratives from way up in North Dakota, you know, upper Missouri river, but the, there's an archetype, right. Of these, of these twins in Indian country. And then globally, you know, there's an archetype of the monster slayer or the one who, who fights monsters. And so I thought it was kind of, it was fascinating I built those regalia pieces primarily to apologize to the land for some of our extractive practices. And yeah. they, they had to be humanoid and because it was like an apology from the human-shaped things. But I think it was it was poignant to do that work on the land there with the with the you know the histories of um <laughs> words over actions you know uh, yeah but it was it was even more poignant that you were you know you built them as an apology from humans for the extractive practices on the earth and the place where we filmed all this you know two three years later later a coal mine and a generating station that had been in operation for about 50 years suddenly i mean it was like the monster twins made it happen (laughs) (laughs) yeah there were i think that there were there's definitely something in the power of um you know these these projects like even these big like um industrialized energy projects had been in the works for for generations there had been people protesting them uh working at them benefiting from them and being poisoned by them kind of simultaneously Within a, you know, and that that long kind of term term strife changes like there's entire generations that grew up yeah. in relationship to to the right. system. Um, right. But I think that there's there was something really kind of surprising around um, us doing that project. And then just within a few years, it um, um, I'm not like <laughs> I'm like so careful about being like I. I had very little to do with that. Like that was that was work that was in the works for a long ass time, and I yeah, just have yeah, to be yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, right. Just yeah. like co coincidence, but yeah, those, <laughs> it, those things happen. <laughs> hey, the thing is, it's 
it's all about timing, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. My, my yeah. parents had no idea that giving birth to me in 1979 would uh, eventually, <laughs> timing-wise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been a real joy getting to know you and work with you. Um, but, dude, it wasn't like you just met me and then you came and stayed at my house. We, we hung out over at coffee over on Central Avenue. And what's that name in the Knob Hill? Knob Hill in, in Albuquerque. Yeah, but that is, that's the yeah. first time I was there. Yeah. You, you told me about a project you were working on, and I was, <laughs> I had no idea of where it would go, but it, it, it was a, it was fun getting there. <laughs> <laughs> and was that was that the um, was that the lazy was I pitching you the lazy stitch project at that time? Yeah, yeah, that was lazy stitch. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so here's here's my my next questions, and I'm and I'm just trying to like bring us to the present. You're you're looking at retiring, but I'm I'm interested in what's your what's your what's the future kind of creative efforts that you're interested this is, this is going to allot you a lot more time yeah right yeah yeah so i'm going to do everything now. i'm going to take classes in printmaking and uh no i haven't I, so the one thing that that i'm working on now <clears throat> is the place where i did the native enslavement project in the san luis valley um, at Fort Garland, built in the 1850s, home to Kit Carson, but was later home in the 1870s, 1875, 1879, to the 9th and 10th Cavalry at the Army, which was the Buffalo Soldiers. I want to kind of pull, pull the blanket back on the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers and um, not identify them as, I mean, Acknowledge them as having been people who were formerly enslaved, many of whom fought for their freedom in the Civil War, who then came west wanting to prove their worth to a government so they could gain full citizenship only to be pitted against Native people. You know, how do we have that, that conversation now? Um, so that's, yeah, that's the project that I'm working on presently. <laughs> I brought together a team of people, including... Um, Esther, um, some poets from the East Coast, Mahogany Brown, some other visual artists, one other street artist who has a social practice, who does amazing work. Oh, and we're gonna we're working with the Minecoast Common Press, which was built in the late 1800s mm -hmm. and was um, like I don't I think I don't know if the original press is in there, but we're we're gonna get to do some work with letterpress. Um, relative to this period in the late 1800s that the project is centered around. Real quickly, we, we were talking about the land. When you and I talked in, on, at Snob Hill, that was when I really realized I am a displaced African when you were talking about your relationship with the land and the stories that it holds and you know how it holds the culture just by knowing the stories and me realizing I don't have that. Um, my having been here for so long is, I, you know, I, I used to joke about being like, you know, back in the 1800s, a freed enslaved person who came and sought refuge on native land. Um, 
But then I started reading about learning it with this Buffalo Soldier Project about people like John Taylor, who was born in Kentucky in the like 1850s or something, um, or 1840s, I'm not sure when, and who was enslaved, escaped, fought for his freedom, came west, became a Buffalo Soldier, but then became was a translator for the Southern Ute tribe and was the first non-native settler in the La, La Plata County, which is where Rango is, which is where Ignacio is. Part of his descendants are still there now. They were known as the Black Utes. Um, huh. Yeah, but just learning about John, people like John Taylor, people like Anita Scott Coleman, whose father was a Buffalo soldier. She was a famous writer for during the Harlem Renaissance, but they lived in New, in New Mexico, in the southern part of New, New Mexico. It's just helped me find a sense of place, you know, through their stories. Um, so that's the type of thing I see myself investing more time and energy in once I take a step back. I don't think of it as retiring to new because like I said, I think I'm still probably going to do it part time. I'm just not going to be here as, as much. <laughs> yeah. Well, think of it however you want. It is going to allow you more creative time so it's yeah, like yeah it's it's transitioning occupations is what it is yeah <laughs> yeah yeah right well now i'm really excited about getting to do something i love full time what <laughs> totally well and then it also it also puts you in a, um it allots you the freedom of removing that strange power dynamic that you've engaged with with your community from you uh, being there yeah. until right you know right now you get to yeah. be you get to be um you get to be one of us <laughs> right. so so that raises the question do i without someone as someone from outside the culture who is no longer offering a service what right i mean okay I, I think in my case, I will have friendships that can get me through. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I just, yeah, I think the nature of my work will change once I leave the reservation and my, you know, and I don't see people as frequently. And, yeah. Right, but even the reservation is a limitation on the landscape. Like it is, it is bordered, it has its edge. Um, Will you get to be a member of the res? Probably not, you know, but can you be a, a, um, an extension of the land itself? Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and I think that's a more honest representation of what it means to belong to a place is, um, can you, can you be an extension of it? And you put the time in. I haven't put that kind of time into the Southwest. Like I still, <laughs> I still feel like this is not my home. You know? Um, yeah. <laughs> I live here. I've been here for 14 years. My children were born at 8,000 feet. You know? Um, so they're they're they feel a lot more kindred to to the landscape in this environment than I do. I'm like a Plains kid from like way back, you know, and, and I feel that, you know, I feel that, that um, outsiderness here, e even still, but it's like, yeah, how do you, how do you change that perspective or how do you reconsider what it means to belong, you know? 
Um, yeah, right. I mean, dude, so so much of my identity for over half of my life has been, you know, I've been Dr. Thomas. <laughs> yeah, <I'm> like, yeah. <laughs> well, you'll still be Dr. Thomas. Yeah, right. No, I I like what you said. I will be one of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm talking about me, you know, weird artist, fucking floating around in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would be honored to be one of you. I, I I mean I I see you as one of us for sure. Thank you. Yeah, just a moment ago was the first time I ever actually called you Doctor Thomas. I've always <laughs> I'm like this man put in the work. I should be calling him Doctor Thomas all the time. <laughs> what? Right, that's right. Let, let me ask you this: I've known you as Chip. Have you always been known as Chip? Like I don't even yeah. I don't, I don't even know your full name. So do you you so you you don't know or you didn't know? I still don't. This would be this is a first for me right <laughs> this is here. Your first time. All yeah. right. So my my father was born James Edward Thomas. I am the son of James Edward Thomas. I'm the son of Jet. I am Jet's son. All right. <laughs> So, <laughs> my favorite show as a kid was the uh, Jetsons, um, and uh, that's how I became Jetson Rama. But my name is James Edward Thomas Jr. Ah, yeah. little chip off the yeah. old shoulder. <laughs> so the day I was born, my dad looked in the maternity ward and said, "He's a chip off the old block." So I had been chipped since that day. That's that's awesome. Now I understand. It actually yeah. it brought together so many things. Jetson right. Romer, James <laughs> Edward Thomas Jr. I get it yeah. now. It's yeah, yeah. It's all right. it's all becoming clear. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for breaking it down. Or thanks for asking the question that allowed me to break it down. Yeah. No, that's that's really that's really amazing. Um Chip had been a moniker that um, some of like coworkers who I've worked with in like really remedial jobs, whether that's like construction, you know, or metal fabrication, whenever you're in those remedial jobs, the, your, your, your peers don't like saying <laughs> chupa. <laughs> They're like, how can I shorten this? And chip was one of the, like, there was an entire metal kidding? fab. No, you were you. No, there was. You were, I, I worked. I worked in a metal fabrication shop in Seattle, Washington, and um, the guy who operated the press break never called me Chinupa. He always called me. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he always called you what? Chip. I, I I dude, I just I cannot see you as a chip. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, most people can't can't see me as a chip <laughs> and the shocked when they you know they hear me on the phone or whatever and they meet it's like wait a minute <laughs> but, yeah i know you i cannot see as a chip well chip is like a, a white guy's name you know it's like a white yeah. guy moniker yeah trust me i know <laughs> <laughs> i i i know this well <laughs> how many rooms have you gotten into with uh chip thomas <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So you're a man of many experiences. We barely touched the, the, the chip of the iceberg, you know, in, in your, um, 
extraordinary life. I've gotten to know many, many extraordinary things, and I would love for people to get to know you and actually hear those stories from you directly, so I'm not going to dive into them. But you are yeah. a man of, of many experiences and, um, and a lot of knowledge, you know, and I respect that. I'm wondering if there's anything that your, um, your mind that has traveled th around the sun throughout the universe, it, what, what kind of like uh, tips or shortcuts or hacks or uh, <laughs> bits of valuable knowledge that can be reduced to uh, anecdotes could you share with us here at the end of our, of our podcast? So I, I'm upset with you for, um, for putting me on the spot and not giving me a heads up and letting me know that you were going to ask me such a, a, a heavy question. <laughs> uh, and you and you're asking me to answer this huh it, it, you can keep it light it doesn't have to burden anybody all right all right all right now i was just thinking about my my uh, time here here on the uh, nation and um there were two things that um but now i can only think of one of those two things and the one lesson that i learned that i'm really thankful for is the um just the need to be able to forgive yourself and to forgive other people. People are going to make mistakes. People are going to make, you know, but um, I, I think if people are acknowledging their mistakes and willing to work at them, I, it doesn't hurt to like let go of that hard, evil, angry vibe, you know? And there was something else I learned. Um, <laughs> oh well <laughs> that's up to you audience yeah right. <laughs> there's it's two things you know and you to find the important things and i'm gonna tell you one. <laughs> and i can only think of one of them so. <laughs> uh, and, you know so as soon as we as soon as we stop as soon as we end this call <laughs> i'm gonna call you to tell you what the second thing is <laughs> Yeah, it's find out yourself. That's the that's yeah. the second thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Give it time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's always room to do better. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. I'm I'm living proof of that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, James. I love Edward. you. Thank you for. Yeah, thank you for taking me on. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, man. I truly appreciate it. Dr. Thomas, yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, and I look forward to uh, doing more more with you. Yeah, I'm I'm also. I, I can't wait to meet you um, without you having to wake up at 5 a.m. and head over to work. Um, I want right. to I want to share one of those like <laughs> uh, you know, morning morning teas. <laughs> Thank you.